One of the themes that we regularly hear in Dharma teachings is, as I was reflecting on yesterday evening, with regard to the way in which we are, we could say, vulnerable in life, exposed in life to the circumstances and challenges that are not in our control. And hearing that teaching and hearing also the invitation to open to this, to accept this reality and the implications it has for us, it might be possible that we start to imagine that somehow Dharma practice is about simply becoming a passive subject of experience. And uh, while it's very much the case that we are invited and encouraged to learn to not fight with our experience, Dharma practice is not at all about passivity. It's not at all about somehow resigning ourselves to this condition. But truly understanding where the potential for transformation is to be found and where our engagement is beneficial. (coughs) Where the energy that we bring to bear in our life is fruitful. Because what we see is that our struggle with experience or against experience, the fact of its uncontrollability, makes that futile. And yet, as a note I just received while coming into the into the hall asks, it's well so aren't we concerned with the end of suffering here? Is it just about kind of putting up with it? And clearly, that might seem like a rather sort of poor outcome, really, to our aspiration, that we can learn to put up with it. Clearly, there's more possibility. And what uh, Dharma teachings are pointing to is, in fact, a degree of inner empowerment that is the basis of freedom. And that is the expression of a life that is no longer bound by conditioning, a life that is no longer confined or defined by the conditioned nature of experience and by the fact that it is not subject to our control. So the development of wisdom the unfoldment of Dharma practice is to see for ourselves where the true strength, the true power, we could say, lies. And that it is not in the controlling or the manipulating of our experience, but that it is in our ability to respond to it from wisdom, from compassion. And in this context, we can reflect on the very nature of what practice is as a response. As a response to what we experience. Rather than a belief system. The uh, the word Buddhism, which we perhaps become familiar with these days and certainly much more known and accepted in our culture than it was uh, 20, 30 years ago. Buddhism is a a word based on a 
an Asian or in fact a Pali or Sanskrit root word with an English suffix added, Buddhism. And I think when we, when we hear that, it e- it's easy to imagine it as a, as a set of beliefs, as a, a way we're supposed to think about the world. But uh, in fact, it's not. And just the word itself, I prefer to translate the, uh, the root word, Bud, if we're going to use it, which means awake. And Buddha, which derives from that, is awakened one, that which is awake. So Buddhism perhaps usefully translates as awakeism. Awakeism. To me that sounds somewhat more attractive than the idea of signing up for a particular set of beliefs or ideas. And it because the idea of having somehow an it's not about an ideology of being awake, it's about an engagement with that possibility that we see it is an active process. Buddhist practice is a response to life. And the the foundation teaching for this response that informs this is the Four Noble Truths that I imagine many of you are familiar with. And these teachings, which I'll speak about in a moment briefly, they are something that we're invited not to understand but to use, to inform, not just to understand or to believe, but to inform our way of responding, inform our way of engaging with the world. And with regard to this this teaching, it sometimes seems that Buddhism is pointing a lot towards the struggle the difficulty, the vulnerability of life. We might think, perhaps, and sometimes even the images of the teachers we see, that I know in sort of the, the yogic traditions, the, the classic uh, appearance of the teacher is with a great big grin, you know, sort of a, some advertisement for having a really uplifted, blissful experience. It's often what you'll see, not necessarily always, whereas often in the, certainly the Theravadan tradition, Buddhist teachers appear rather grim and serious, like you know they're getting on with the, the the heavy business of getting enlightened, or or if they should have been so fortunate as to have succeeded in that endeavour, then it sort of left them still looking pretty serious. And uh, it's kind of funny in a way, but perhaps also unfortunate that we might come to have that association with Dharma practice. In fact, the Buddha is uh, very well known for, or very frequently quoted for a particular statement that he made when he said, I teach one thing and one thing only, suffering and the end of suffering. And uh, a friend of mine in America once reflected, he, he was thinking about this, and he said, well, that's a curious statement, isn't it? Because the Buddha sort of he's said this on a number of occasions, apparently. He said, because actually that sounds like two things, suffering and the end of suffering. So he uh, went on to, to reflect and surmise that perhaps the Buddha started off just teaching one thing, I teach suffering. He's, but he found that people weren't that interested or maybe they didn't hang around that long. You know, if we just were to teach suffering, you know, who would sign up? 
And so the fuller statement of what he's teaching, suffering and the end of suffering. And yet, in fact, the understanding of suffering is the basis of the end of suffering. So we could also understand that it is one thing, and perhaps my friend was just being a little cheeky. But nonetheless, this is the foundation of what we're engaged in. And the Four Noble Truths articulates this as the recognition of that which when we live by it ennobles our life, makes our life an expression of nobility. And the first of the truths that there is dukkha, as the word of the Buddha, means suffering, unsatisfactoriness, dissatisfaction, struggle, conflict. There's many ways, stress, anguish, as many words are used to translate it. But essentially it's that sense of really not being able to be at home, at peace, feeling a depth of connection and satisfaction in life. And the Buddha, the first noble truth he spoke of is there is suffering, there is dukkha in life. And this is something to be understood. It's not to be believed in, oh yeah, I believe that. It's like to be understood. What does this really mean? That there is suffering, there is dukkha in life. If we understand this, then we we stop struggling with that fact rather than imagining that somehow the suffering of our life is evidence of our failing or there being something wrong with the world or others or ourselves. We see that, oh no, this is part of how life is. It's not the entirety of it, but it's an aspect of how we experience life. Dukkha, suffering, to be understood. So the response to this truth is to understand it, to look at it, to examine it for yourself. Is it so? Not just to believe it because the Buddha or someone who's in his lineage of teaching should say that to you. And the second noble truth of the Buddha's teaching, that there is a cause for dukkha. That it doesn't just happen by accident, but that it arises due to a cause. And that cause is craving, is clinging. It's that pressure we place upon experience to make it conform with what we want that takes its expression and either grasping towards, trying to hold on to and pull things towards us, or pushing away, resisting, struggling with, attempting to negate or remove what's there. Then that this process of struggling with our experience, this craving, this grasping, this resistance, this is the cause of suffering. And again, this is not something to simply be believed in, but something to be responded to. And the response is to abandon this. Abandon this. And if we see how the the process of struggling with the difficult things in our life amplifies the difficulty, it makes sense to us to let it go. To release ourselves from that compulsion. And when we see that the attempt to take hold of the things that we delight in or appreciate, that the very taking hold and the fear and the worry that is engendered by our attempt to hold on to it means that we cannot enjoy it. 
and that we lose the very benefit we were trying to grasp. Again, we see it makes no sense to hold on in this way. And we seek to learn what it means to abandon this, to abandon the cause of suffering. This is what we're engaged in here, looking to see for ourselves how is this possible for me in my circumstance, in my experience. And the third noble truth of the Buddha, the third ennobling truth of the Buddha, that there is an end to dukkha, that there is an end to the sense of being caught within, bound up by the conditioned nature of life. There is an end to this. And this, this ending, again, is not just to believe in, oh, how lovely, I'd really like to believe in that. But it's something to be realized, something to be experienced, something that we can come to know for ourselves directly. And in that knowing of it, in the releasing of heart and mind from the grip of dukkha, from the, from the pain of grasping, in that there is, again, an ennobling, of the spirit, of the heart. And that there's a path, the fourth noble truth, fourth ennobling truth. There is a path to the end of suffering. There is a path to this realization. And this is what we engage in. This is the journey that we undertake. And so we're invited as a response to that hearing that there is a path to, to undertake it, to cultivate it, to journey along in this way. And all of these responses are an expression of the active element of Dharma practice, the way in which it asks us to engage with life and to engage with the question which really states or asks of us, what is possible in the face of how things are? First of all, we need to see how things are. We need to stop denying it or pretending it was other or wishing it was other than as it is. Some certain courage and honesty with ourselves about the reality of life. And from that place, from that place then, responding, seeing what's possible for us. There's a poem I'd like to read which for me expresses a very wonderful spirit of this and it's, it's actually an excerpt from a larger piece that is attributed to a, a 14th century samurai from Japan. And he writes, I have no parents. I make the heavens and earth my parents. I have no home. I make awareness my home. I have no life or death. I make the tides of breathing my life and death. I have no divine power. I make honesty my divine power. I have no friends. I make my mind my friend. I have no enemy. I make carelessness my enemy. I have no armour. I make benevolence my armour. I have no castle. I make immovable mind my castle. I have no sword 
I make absence of self my sword. It's a remarkable poem. That sense of just seeing how things are and yet seeing how one can respond to it. To see that in some way we have no home. There's nothing in the world we can rely upon that will be there for us. No pile of bricks or piece of land or place that's always necessarily going to be there for us. And yet to make awareness our home. What a wonderful invitation to be at home in this capacity for seeing clearly and truly what life is. I have no friends. Not that we have no friends, but seeing there's no one who's always there for us. It's not possible for someone always to be there, always to be looking out for us. What is it to make our mind our friend? Something beautiful about that aspiration, to make our mind our friend. Because this mind is going to be with us the whole journey, one way or another. And to really befriend our mind, make our mind our friend. This is what the training of the heart and mind is all about. So that mind, rather than being apparently a struggle or an obstacle or the problem, as we sometimes might conceive it, it becomes a tool and a support and a companion in the journey. So I may refer back to some of those phrases, but in the, in the context of this practice and what we've been engaging in here, to see what's it like to be able to cultivate that which enables us to live well. What does that involve? What are we bringing forth in this process of meditative development that supports our ability to live well in this world, to respond skillfully to the way things are? One of the things that we see and we observe again and again is how easily and how quickly we get blown by the winds of circumstance, how the forces around us or within us, in our own minds or in the world, exert pressure upon us, and how we become lost in reaction to that. And I'm sure there's not a single person in this room who hasn't today and each day we've been here had opportunity to see how that happens to us, how sometimes we get caught or hooked by some reactivity, and how we're carried or blown by it. And we've also had opportunity to see that it doesn't have to be that way. That we can develop a steadiness that allows us to be free in the midst of those pushes and pulls. And it's, it's like what we need is to have a clear intention. It's like the rudder on a boat that gives us a sense of direction, that we know that our intention is towards being present and responding to what is here with as much clarity and as much kindness, as much wisdom and compassion as we can bring. That's not a blueprint or a formula for, for engaging with life, but it's like a, 
an orientation. It's a way we align ourselves. And in order to be able to to follow through on our intentions, to allow our deepest aspirations to lead us forward in our lives, we need to cultivate a sense of stability. And the, the phrase from the poem, I have no castle, I make immovable mind my castle. Something wonderful about that expression. To say we don't have some kind of safe, defended place where nothing can get to us. You know, it would be nice. I'd quite like to have a castle. It'd be you know, kind of pleasant. Those big brick things, nice turrets, and all of that. But that idea we might have of somehow having this big sort of defensive construction around us to protect us, we don't have that. But to make immovable mind our castle. What does that mean? To have a sense of equanimity, we could say. In which whatever comes to us, we know. We have a trust, we have a confidence that we do not need to be blown off course by this. And it's like like a boat. We have the rudder on the boat that gives direction, but also with a boat, and particularly a sailboat, which is perhaps the, the best metaphor for our life rather than a motorboat. With a sailboat, you have that deep keel, you know, that those of you who maybe English is not your first language, the keel, it's that, like that big wide board that sticks deep into the water below the boat, below a sailboat. And how when you have that keel, the wind that blows won't tip the boat over. It, it sort of provides a counterbalance to it. And when we, as we cultivate the sense of being present, this ability to return, to ground ourselves in the here and now, in the immediacy of our experience. It's like we're energetically establishing our own keel, that sense of rooting deep into this moment, deep into where we are. That energetically it's like we're earthed, we're grounded. We're not just sliding around on the surface, which is what can often be the experience. It's like there's this this rootedness. And sometimes we can really feel it as we're present and we're in our bodies. And we're sitting or standing or walking or engaged, engaged in a posture. And there's just the sense of really feeling the earth and the connection deep into that earth. Or that quality of earth which is a solidity and a substantiality that's there. Just from the wholeheartedness of our capacity to be present and how that somehow counterbalances it's like it has a, a weightiness to it a solidity to it that when the winds of experience of circumstance blow when difficult feelings arise or strong patterns of reactivity or circumstances in life don't go as we wish we know that there's something we can turn to that empowers us in that circumstance in that situation it's like Ah, yes, whatever comes may be difficult at times, but there's this way of being, this possibility that we have access to because we've cultivated it, because we've developed it, because we've really brought it clearly into focus within our life. And from that place of connection, of groundedness, we see that we start to have possibilities 
for responding. Rather than just reacting, we have choices. And to enter the experience or to move away becomes something that we're not compelled in regard to, but that we choose, that we can see. And, and this is part of what we learn as we practice. We start to see by experience what's useful. What's a useful response? There's no, what, someone can't tell us what we need to do in any moment. There's no blueprint for that. But we learn how to do it by going through the process again and again. There's a great story of a student who comes to see their Zen master, their teacher, and they have this one special opportunity to ask questions from the master. The student who's for many years wanted this opportunity has finally been granted an audience. He comes to his master, he says, Oh, master, master, can you tell me what is the most important thing? The Zen master looks at him, he says, Good judgment. Student's very happy. Oh, thank you, thank you. Can you tell me, how do you get good judgment? The Zen master says, hmm, experience. Thank you, thank you. How do you get experience? Hmm, bad judgment. (laughs) The process of discovering the wisdom to live our lives by is born of making mistakes that show us. Not that we've got it wrong or that we're somehow sort of hopeless, which is sadly all too easily what we might conclude when we make mistakes. But we really need to understand that we don't learn and we don't grow without doing that. And some of the struggle or some of the suffering we experience is simply the feedback loop that's telling us to pay attention, to see what we need to learn, to see where we can learn. And so to welcome it then as useful information rather than as evidence of messing it up again so that we can take heart from the opportunity to learn rather than feel in some way that we've got it wrong. And learn to face the inner forces that drive us. To see that when we can recognize the power of fear or of desire, to see it for what it is, we don't need to act it out nor get rid of it. But we can be present in the face of it and see it move through. This only needs to really happen once for us to begin to understand that we have an immense power and capacity to free ourselves from suffering. The suffering born of believing that we must either get rid of that experience or enact it. The experience of craving and grasping, resistance and fear. These are simply to be known for what they are. And so then, we have the capacity to choose that which most deeply serves us. Because what is all too common, and what I think probably for all of us we're quite familiar with, is where we know what would actually be wise 
what would actually be skillful, what would truly serve. But we find we're not always able to make that choice. That we see what we're doing. It's not that difficult to see what we're doing. But what is difficult is to make the change, to have the courage and the commitment to do that. So what we're asked is to see very clearly what is possible for us to not sacrifice that which is most important. In terms of practice, sitting with our difficult experience, one of the things we discover is that, in fact, we can open to and experience and accommodate and be present with much more than we ever imagined. And the habit of abandoning our deeper aspiration for short-term comfort is something that we do not need to continue to do. There's a, a story of Mullah Nasruddin, who I mentioned, I think, earlier, maybe on the first night. This teaching figure from the uh, Sufi tradition. And there was a time in his life when he was very poor, just still living his uh, commitment to his spiritual practice and teaching, but living in a very simple way. And he had nothing to eat for many, many weeks and months, but simple diet of bread and chickpeas, which was not particularly entertaining, one might suspect. And he one day got into conversation with another spiritual teacher of his time, who at that time was living with the emperor and had a very comfortable existence with many regular attendances at banquets and wonderful, comfortable quarters to live in. And after they were speaking about their circumstances, the other, the wise man, the teacher who lived with the emperor, he said, you know, Nasruddin, if you would learn to flatter and be subservient to the emperor like I am, you would not need to live on bread and chickpeas. And Nasruddin turned and looked at him. He said, you know, if you could learn to live on bread and chickpeas, you wouldn't need to flatter and be subservient to the emperor. So it's like, do we see what's most important? And, you know, that the, in a way the emperor represents in this story the, the kind of, artif- well, not artificial, but the, the kind of the surface materialistic values of our world, which we're told to emphasize comfort and material sort of acquisition above all things. And yet, the deepest satisfaction we might know can come from such simple moments of just being connected with ourself or at peace in taking one step. And for such moments of discovery, we might be quite willing and happy to live more simply with less, put less of our time and energy into accumulation and more into simply connecting, opening, touching our life. But this really does require courage. to live 
and make choices that support what is true. This is something we can learn to do. And I think when, we, when we're with ourselves over the days, it's quite naturally the case that we feel in our hearts those places where we haven't been true to ourselves. Where one way or another we maybe have compromised what we really love and value in order to be more comfortable or safe or stay within what's familiar and known. And it can be a, a kind of a healthy grief and regret where we see those times or places or situations of our lives where in a sense we've given away what we most love, traded the gold for, for comfort or chocolate. A friend and student of mine uh, in America many, well not that many years ago, but quite a few years ago now, was um, very much engaged in Dharma practice and doing retreats as you've been doing here. And she was also involved in uh, developing her her career as a singer-songwriter in New York and what is a, a pretty challenging and demanding environment to break into or sort of the whole culture of performance art and New York is pretty intense. And uh, she was also involved in an in a area of her particular activism with regard to the uh, addressing some of the, the harm done by the smoking lobby in America and particularly the, uh, the way in which the advertising is directed towards vulnerable people. And at one point in her, in her life, when she was... Uh, involved in these three areas, she was invited to join a, in a way, a talent contest, contest, you could say, where she was performing in a concert in New York and a number of other sort of recognised up-and-coming sort of talents in her sort of general field of performance um, were also there. And the winner was going to be given a contract with a recording studio to produce a a sort of a, a debut CD and a national tour of the States. And she participated in this concert, in this sort of concert slash contest. And she won. And it was like, wow, suddenly this whole realm of her life, and she'd been struggling for some years with this, to, to find a way in, to get beyond sort of the playing in smoky bars scene. And after she won, and she started to find out who was behind the contest, it turned out it was sponsored by a tobacco company. And it was a really interesting moment for her, I think. And she, she, you know, she spoke about this, how, what was she going to do? And it was incredibly inspiring and heartening to me that she said, no, I don't want that prize. I don't want to become or to have this doorway opened by compromising something I value so much by taking this from a source that I do not wish to support. And so she, she let go of that prize. She renounced that possibility. And something just inspiring to me, hearing stories like that. I'm sure you've also heard stories of this vein, the sense of someone who's committed to what they believe in and willing to perhaps, for her, it might have been the one chance to break into the larger world that she aspired to for her with the love of her music that she had. And 
I'm kind of happy and of course you know one would hope for a happy ending and certainly in this case she did over some following years find her way in and has, has developed quite a successful career performing internationally and uh, and that and so just in reflecting on that it's like where do we make those choices in our lives where do we make the choices from where in ourselves do we make those choices that allow ourselves to stay true to what we most deeply believe in? And I think it really comes from understanding what's important. That's what empowers us. When we know what's truly important, we don't want to compromise it. We don't want to abandon it. And to understand as a foundation for life that refraining from causing harm so far as we can, having a commitment to our own life being in support of life rather than undermining it. This is a source of immense power to have this foundation of, of not being willing to compromise that without having some kind of sort of righteous, purest view about things because of course, there is no way we can live in this world without having an impact on others. And sometimes that might cause harm or suffering. But that so far as we can, our intention is to be aligned with that. This is a source of immense strength in life. <clears throat> and the basis for a quality of inner well-being it's sometimes described as the condition of no regret. Which doesn't mean that we might not have sorrow or grief or even a sense of regret around things that have happened other than as we wished. But that we have a trust and a confidence in ourselves that we've done our best. We've done what is possible for us to not cause harm to others or to ourselves and to contribute to the welfare and the well-being of others. There's something in this about aligning ourselves with honesty also. Again, in the, the poem, I have no divine power. I make honesty my divine power. So there's something about being true with ourselves, about not embellishing or distorting what we see or what we understand, not trying to kind of puff ourselves up or put ourselves down in the way we describe ourselves or conceive ourselves. But aligning ourselves with what is true. Which means acknowledging where we have limitations, where we need to learn to grow, to see what our places of vulnerability are. And this is part of what we see when we practice. We notice those places we get caught and hooked and reactive. Those areas that need attention within our lives. And being honest is also acknowledging our positive qualities, our strengths, being able to see that too. And it's really interesting, isn't it? Most of us would probably find it a lot easier to be honest about our failings. You know, if you were to be asked, okay, I'd like, you know, if I was to say, I'd like you all to write down, you know, a list of 10 things that really need working on, you know, really could do with some improvement. I imagine you could all come up with a list. I could for myself very quickly. You know, we'd all know those things. And even if you had to read them out, it wouldn't be too bad because, you know, it's kind of 
so much what we're used to doing. But imagine if you were told to make a list of ten things about yourself that are truly wonderful. How hard would that be for us? I mean, it would be lovely if it was easy. But for many of us, often it's harder to really let that in, to be honest with ourselves about how the goodness of our aspiration is what actually drives our life. That the wish for our own well-being, that a caring for others, is there in so many ways, so often. Yet to really see that, to really acknowledge it, isn't easy for us. And yet this is what honesty asks. To really see what's true. There's an immense power that comes from living with generosity a way in which our life is empowered. Again, that sense of being able to respond to life with sharing, with a sense of, with a sense of inclusiveness. That when we understand that giving and receiving is the very nature of life, it's its very fabric. It's not like we are somehow... Life is being done to us any more than we are doing life. But it's something that's constantly interacting. And our existence is an expression of that. is a manifestation of that. A sense of giving and receiving. And you know for us, I was speaking earlier this afternoon about the, you know, the power and the value of giving. But generosity is equally about receiving. You know, what is it to receive our life? To receive what life offers us? Again, sometimes for us it's harder to simply receive. You know, has someone ever said something really kind to you and you can just receive it? Or is there a need to respond and say something nice always back? Now that's fine, that's lovely, to reply in kind, a sense of giving and receiving. But sometimes it's really hard just to let ourselves receive. And to practice that on occasion can be useful. To just allow ourselves to receive. There's something about honouring our own value, our own worthiness of receiving. What is it to see that in ourselves? To really acknowledge that we, and equally each and every and all beings, are worthy of this life of the receiving of this life, which we are doing by being alive. And in recognizing that worthiness, having a natural interest in supporting that, in contributing to that, in caring for that. And likewise, the spirit of loving kindness which, of which we could say this is an expression, that sense of benevolence, of well-wishing, of caring for others. How powerful that is when we can just bring a sense of kindness into our own experience. How transforming it is when we bring that into life. And seeing again, this is a response. This naturally comes out of our heart when we're there, when we're present, when we're open. It's not something we have to manufacture not something we have to do. All we'd ask really is to allow the obstacles to that to fall away. And the fear and the 
the neediness that as we start to see it and let it go, not have to live our life defined by that, quite naturally the heart is open. The heart is receptive, is responsive. And there's a sense of caring that we find that simply flows into the world to meet what is there. And so again, in terms of a response to life, and sense, in terms of being empowered in life, it's like allowing that natural energy of kindness, of care, to flow through us, to express itself in the world, to touch our life and the life of others. Compassion is that response that wishes to relieve suffering, to heal the pain of life. And while understanding that there's certain experiences in life that are inherently painful, that we cannot avoid, that we cannot protect others from. And the Buddha talked of you know, birth, aging, sickness and death, of sorrow, pain, grief, lamentation, despair, of being separated from what we love, being associated with that which we don't like, not getting what we want. All these things we experience, and they're difficult for us. And yet, the suffering that that creates is not something that we are bound in. That when we see that, when we understand that, we're responding to it with a sense of caring, with a sense of meeting it. That very caring itself can allow ourselves, can allow the gap or the sense of separation that arises when we resist or struggle with suffering. The very caring can heal that gap, can fill that space. And so, allowing that to move through us, allowing that to come. And how do we do that? How do we just allow that to happen? It's really a case of trusting in the goodness of our own hearts and yet at the same time acknowledging the limitations of our circumstance. Because often what happens, I think, is that we see how much suffering there might be in our life or suffering there may be in the world. And it feels like it's almost overwhelming. How can I deal with this? It's too much. And maybe it's just easier to turn away from it or to try and push it away, we think. And yet, we're not necessarily required or asked to resolve it all. We don't need to somehow be the solution to all problems. But what we are asked to do is respond to what's right here, in our own life, or in the life of another, or in the world. I had a very powerful experience with regard to this some years ago when I was travelling in India. And I find it very, very beneficial to reflect upon for myself. And so I like to share this experience, talking about this territory. And I was given, or I had the opportunity when in Calcutta in India to visit one of the homes run by the Order of Mother Teresa called Shishi Bhavan. Shishi Bhavan translates loosely, Shishi is children, Bhavan is home, is a children's home. It was an orphanage. And 
in this orphanage many babies and young children, mostly coming from the very poor and destitute peoples living on the streets of Calcutta, in conditions of extreme poverty and at times illness and deprivation. And some of the children and the babies there were there because their parents had died and they were orphaned, died through starvation or through disease. Others were there because their parents were so, so desperately poor that they could not feed them. And this organization was there to look after these, these young beings. I went there with a friend. And the two of us, both, he was another young man like myself, we were told when we came that we could only stay for a couple of hours because in the, in the culture of that, of that country, it's, it's really, for various reasons, men weren't allowed to work in the orphanages. It was regarded as women's work. And um, without going into all of that, that was just how it was. We were told, you can come and visit, but this isn't somewhere you can come and volunteer to work, um, which is what we were doing in other places at the time working in a street clinic it's another story but anyway we went to this um, we went to this place this orphanage and this amazing thing as we walked in the door there was this room probably one and a half times the size of this of this hall and in it were cots the cots were basically in lines and rows packed together even more closely than you are in here and in each cot there was two babies and as we walked into the room these babies started looking up at us. Some of them started reaching their arms up towards us. And there was also in this room two or three of the, uh, the nuns of the order, Sisters of Mercy or Sisters of Charity, I can't remember now. And we could see and realize straight away what was happening. It's like these, these women were going around feeding the babies and cleaning the babies. And it was really apparent that they probably didn't have any time to hold the babies. As we walked into this room, we saw these babies. And these babies were looking up at us. And some of the slightly older ones were pulling themselves up on the sides of their cots and reaching out to us. It's like this amazing, these little faces, these little beings. And so we just looked at each other and thought, what can we do here? Okay. So go to a cot, pick up a baby and just... It's like it's like a limpet, sort of. It just knew what it wanted, and they just, this baby was just like holding on, just holding this little precious being, thinking, "Wow, you know, it wants so much to be held." And realizing these babies didn't get held very much, but there's this whole room full of babies. So after some time, just peeling it off, you know, putting it down, picking up another one, and just holding it, and just holding it. And then after a while, okay. It was heartbreaking, heartbreaking to see and to feel and to be open to that immensity of need for just to be held. And we spent the two hours going through the room. We didn't get through half the babies, I wouldn't imagine. But at the end of the time, we had to leave. And there was something in me that was saying, you know, I could spend the rest of my life in this room holding these babies and I can't imagine there would be a life that would have been a, a better, more heartfelt and nourishing life for me than that. There might be one equally so, but it couldn't be more so than that. And yet, this wasn't on offer. This wasn't a possibility for me. And to be perfectly honest with myself, I could tell that if it had, I wouldn't have chosen it. 
I wouldn't have just stayed there and done that the rest of my life. But nonetheless, something about just doing what we did, as well as feeling the heart, in a way, broken open by the immensity of that need for holding and for love, in just responding to it and doing what we could, which was being with those babies for that time. There was also something that felt like a profound healing and a profound lesson. It would have been easy to look at what was in that room and say, I can't deal with this. This is too much. I don't want to go there. And too often we do that. We look at the world and we think, there is just too much here. I can't face this. I don't want to deal with this world or the suffering in it. Or we even look at our own life and we say, wow, it's too hard. I just don't want to go there. But you know, when we think about it in that way, we've missed something really important. Because we don't have to do it all or straight away. All we need to do is respond to the peace that's here. It's like meet what's in your heart right now. You don't have to resolve your whole life in this moment. Meet what's in your heart right now. When you encounter a situation in the world, do what you can there. If you can offer a kind word or give some support to a situation, wonderful. If you have that resource and capacity, allow yourself to do that. If you don't have anything you can offer materially, even just extending a kind thought or a kind word to someone makes a difference. And it has the effect of weaving one's heart into the larger matrix of life, into the larger interwoven fabric of life. And to really include yourself in this, to see that where your own limits are met, that's where you need to have compassion for yourself. During that time in India, I was struck on a number of occasions by the the incredible beauty of some of these poor people who had a joy in their life, despite the poverty and the grinding struggle just to stay alive. And having sort of embarked on my rather bright-eyed and fresh-faced travels with my savings from two years of work after university, there was something in me that was saying to me, you know, you could give your money to these people or to some projects that I got involved with. Give all of this money you've saved up to it. It would really make such a difference to their life and to the lives of many people less fortunate than yourself. And you know, I couldn't do it. I couldn't. I couldn't let it go. I could give some, and I did. But I couldn't just give it all and go home and start again. And something in that about being able to see, ah, look, that's where my limit was in that place. That's where I was up against my own edge of how far I could open and let go. And when you come to that place in yourself, and we all do at times, what that asks is, Turn to yourself with that compassion. It's not some failing. It's about balance. That we need to care for our own being in order to be able to care for others. 
and that ultimately compassion asks us to not set them apart. To see that if we put ourself above others, this is a distortion of truth. But equally, if we put ourselves below or of less value than others, that equally is a distortion. And so, what is it to hold self and other of equal value? And responding outwardly when we can and inwardly when we need to. Wherever that is possible for us. This is the practice and the expression of more and more understanding, more and more deeply understanding that we are not separate. That we are not separate from life. In the poem when the author writes, I have no sword. I make absence of self my sword. Understanding this teaching is what cuts through suffering in our life and in the world. That sense of how we extract a sense of being apart from life, where we hold through identification ourselves apart from the totality of existence. When we see that this is a fabrication, the natural response of the heart is towards the welfare of all beings and caring and compassion for all beings. And the journey of one's spiritual practice is not for oneself, but for life. Not by oneself, but by life and through life. And ultimately, coming to rest in an indivisible, benevolent presence of aliveness that cares profoundly for all that lives. This is what our practice is for. And this is the fruition of practice. So let's sit quietly for a few minutes together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.